All the sorrow in the world won't change his heart. All the sorrow in the world won't give him the power to obey. Only the Spirit residing in a converted heart can give him the power to obey. And Herod doesn't have that. was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. So here we see a number of things. We see, of course, the, the fear of man. Man, He's more afraid of what the people in the room think of him, even though most people in the room probably don't even like him. Most people in the room would probably, probably betray him at the drop of a hat. Nevertheless, he cares more for their opinion of him than for the life of John the Baptist. Contrast, if you will, just, just the, the stark contrast between Herod and John. Here's a man that is so afraid of what people think of him that he will behead the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Meanwhile, in prison, there sits one who was so, who had such a fear of God that the fear of man had no place in his life to such a degree that the Pharisees would make this two-day journey out to the wilderness to hear him preach and be baptized by him. And he would, say to him, he would say to them, who told you to flee the coming wrath, you brood of vipers? That's a man with no fear of man because he fears God. Contrasted against one who does not fear God, but instead fears what everyone thinks about him. Notice also the parallel with Elijah. We don't need to go into that, but the same thing that we saw in Elijah. We see the fear of man. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word for her to, her to her. We also see the progressive nature of sin. Sin will always do the same thing, and that is progress and take more and consume more and kill more. Sin is never content with what it has. Sin knows only one thing, and that is to grow. It's like cancer. You cannot say to cancer, it's okay if you just have my spleen, just leave everything else to me. It doesn't work that way. It's all right if you just have this one lung, just stay right there and we'll be friends. It doesn't work that way. Sin is like termites. You cannot say to, to a nest of termites, you know, why don't you only eat these boards over here and well, I'll leave you alone as long as you don't eat the rest of the boards in the house. No, they're going to eat every board in the house until either you destroy them or they destroy the house. Same thing with cancer, same thing with sin. You cannot contain it. You cannot manage it. So we see here the one sin leads to a second, leads to another and another and another. That's the way sin is. But we also see something that's really helpful to see. Verse 26 again, And the king was exceedingly sorry. Exceedingly sorry. That's a word that Mark is only going to use one other time. And that's at the end of the gospel to describe the emotions of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So here Mark is thinking of a word and he's thinking, what word can I use to describe Herod's heart, Herod's attitude when he learned that his foolish vow is now going to cost the life of John? What word should I use to describe his? Oh, I'll use this one. The same word that I'm going to use to describe Jesus's heart in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's how sorrowful Herod was. But here's the takeaway there. It doesn't matter. 
Herod can have in his heart all of the sorrow in the world and sorrow can never lead him to obedience. All of the sorrow that the world has ever known cannot produce righteousness. That's why Paul will say to the Corinthians that there is a godly sorrow that leads to life, but there is also a worldly grief that leads not to life, but it leads to death. And this is the sorrow that Herod has. And it doesn't matter how sorry he is because all the sorrow in the world won't change his heart. All the sorrow in the world won't give him the power to obey. Only the spirit residing in a converted heart can give him the power to obey. And Herod doesn't have that. So he can be as sorry as he wants. Just like you or any anyone, any human, we can be as sorry for our sin as we want and your sorrow will do nothing unless it is genuine repentance, which opens the door, of course, to the Spirit. So his sorrow does not give him the power to obey. Only the indwelling Spirit, only the converted heart gives him the power to obey. Verse 27, And immediately... The king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head and he went and beheaded him in the prison. So with incredible succinctness, which is typical of the Bible, typical of the the Gospels, with an incredible paucity of words, Mark just simply says he went and beheaded him in the prison. We're not told if the executioner was delighted to do that. Maybe he was sick of John. Maybe the executioner was so sick of listening to John preach and, and declare his sins to him that he was, he, just, he was gleeful, couldn't wait to do it. Or maybe the executioner was sad. Maybe the executioner had grown to love John after listening to him day after day and had grown attached to him. Maybe the executioner had even been converted and now he had to do this tremendously hard thing. We don't know. We're just told that he was executed. We don't know if the axe was dull, took five or six chops, or if it was sharp. We don't know. We just know his head was separated from his body in the prison, verse 28, and brought his head on a platter. And the executioner gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Notice again the heart of Salome. What did the mother do with the head? We don't know. I mean, what do you, where do you keep a head? So gave it to the mother, verse 29, and when his disciples heard of it, they came and they took his body and they laid it in a tomb. So here we see once again the long-standing, solid Christian tradition of caring for the body of the deceased and placing that body in the grave to await the resurrection. So I remain fully convinced that this is the most faithful way for Christians to care for the bodies of the deceased is to take those bodies and place them in the ground to await resurrection. There is not one instance in all of Scripture, except for one, of God's people burning a body, and that was in the case of the body of Saul that had been so mutilated that that was all that they could do for it. So this is to say that today we live in a time in which cremation of Christians is ever increasingly popular. The percentage of those who are cremated after death, has it's, it's never been anything close. I think it's something like 40% now. So it is not a sin for a Christian to cremate. It is not sinful. The Bible does not declare it in those such terms. But it does, see, it does present to us an understanding of the body after death that says to us that the most faithful thing to do with the body after death is to place it in the grave to await resurrection. What will happen in the grave? It'll rot. 
That's what it's supposed to do. Dust to dirt, earth to earth, and dust to dust. It will rot as it's supposed to do. But it's the statement of the Christian placing the body in the grave to say, this body will rise again. This body will rise again in a glorified body. Again, it is not sinful for Christians to cremate, but it is the solid, long-standing tradition of Christians to take the body instead and care for it, carefully put it into the grave. So his disciples heard of it and they came and they took his body and they laid it in the tomb. So the last thing that we're going to see really is probably the main point of the whole story. The last thing to see is, of course, this beheading of John. And aren't we tempted in the story to just think of this? What a tragedy. What a tragedy. What a tragedy this was. I mean, here was John, the most powerful of the Old Testament prophets, the, the one who had such boldness to speak to the leader of the land, as well as the Pharisees, to the, to the Roman soldiers. He would say things to the Roman soldiers like, stop taking advantage of people. I mean, and here, and here he was in the prime of life, executed. What a tragedy. Let me just finish the story by encouraging all of us to change the way that we think of what just happened in the story. The story is a tragedy, but the tragedy is Salome. She's the tragedy. What happens to John is glorious. I'm going to borrow from a man by the name of Albert Martin and his handling of this episode of this passage of Scripture. I'm going to borrow some metaphors and some way of looking from some way of looking at this from him because I think that the way he presents this is the best way it could be presented. What John was presented with was a door. And what God did in the story was God used some raw materials to fashion a door. In John's instance, he used the raw materials of a long imprisonment, maybe up to a year, probably some cruel guards. This impetuous little brat of a girl, Salome, her mother, who didn't like to be told no, her indecisive, divided father, and an axe. Maybe it was a dull axe, maybe it was a sharp axe. But God took those raw materials and He fashioned from those raw materials a door. And He said to John, here's your door. Now step through it, my son. Step through it so that I can say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You see, John was, of course, invincible until his work was done. His work was to proclaim the Christ, to point to the Christ. His work was to proclaim the sinfulness of the leader. His work was to be a voice. And the moment his work was done, his father said to him, here's your door. Now come and step through it. All of God's children, God does the same thing for all of his children. He fashions a door for all of us. Now, those doors are never the same. All of our doors are different. He makes those doors out of different material. Two weeks ago, we saw our brother Harold's door. Our brother Harold's door was, we don't know, maybe it was an electrical cord he tripped over. Maybe it was a rake he tripped over. 
And it was a hard concrete floor. And it was the back of his head. And it was uncontrolled bleeding in his brain. And it was extensive brain damage. And that was his door. And God said to Harold, here's your door. And our temptation is to say, what a tragedy. I mean, Harold was still in good health. Still just loved by all of us. Such a We were talking this morning of just how it's just not the same without Harold here. And so the temptation is to say, what a tragedy. <laughs> that was his door. A couple of years ago, God made a door for Jerry. That door looked like a sudden, unexpected, massive heart attack. A few weeks ago, Amber's not here, but her grandfather had a door made for him. Let me encourage all of us to take this story. And what I feel like is the central main point is to say God has a door for all of his people. And what our heart should do is our heart should say to God, God, when your work through me is done and when your work in me is done, I do not want to stay here one moment longer. Because, you know, God is doing two things. He is doing a work through you for his kingdom. And he's doing a work in you to prepare you for his kingdom. And what our prayer should be is the moment that work is complete, the moment I don't want to be here one instant longer. Make the cry of my heart, the cry of Paul to the Philippians to, to live as Christ, but to die is great gain. To die is a door. That we step through that door and that's when life really begins. Your door might look like the doctor's report of that thing that's been hurting and bothering you for a while. And he says, yeah, it's what we're afraid of. It's cancer. And it's not only cancer, it's stage four. Some doors come quickly and unexpectedly. Some doors look like a car that missed the red light and T-boned into the driver's side of your vehicle. Other doors you see coming from a long way away. Like what is apparently my mother's door. That's going to be at the end of a long road of a disease that is taking all of her memory. It's already taken all of her short-term memory. And it's working hard at taking her long-term memory too. She doesn't know if she's in her 20s or 40s or her 60s. And that door could possibly be a long way off. And it might take a long time to get there. But it's still the door. So John is a story that says to us that the glory of this story is this. The moment John's eight-pound head bounced off that dungeon floor, his soul had flown to his God. His race was run. His glory was now beginning. The moment his head was separated from his body, his soul was separated from pain and sorrow and tears and frustrations. The moment his head was separated from his body, his soul was connected forever in a tangible and real way with his God. Let me just encourage you to foster that prayer within your soul. That prayer, that prayer that cries out to God, God, help me to not see the disease. Help me to not see the illness. Help me to not see 
the accident helped me to not see the failing health, helped me to see a door 